0: Good morning, I'm Danielle Morrow and I'm a member here at Redemption and I will be reading our scripture this morning from Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Danielle.
1: Good morning. My name's Carl. I'm one of the elders here. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are so thankful for the work of your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the victory of the gospel. One in your son's sacrificial service for us. I pray for us this morning that you would make us more and more blameless. More and more children of God. So that we can enjoy fellowship with you more. And we can progress your kingdom here on earth. Recognizing the whole time that you're at work in us. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I thought this morning we could start by flexing our imagination just a little bit. Let's just imagine that the Apostle Paul is here with us. And uh, let's interview him. Let's ask him a couple questions. So, hey, Paul, thanks for joining us. You look good today. Good for a couple thousand. Uh, Let me ask you a couple questions. Paul, who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? And I imagine, even just from Philippians, he might say something like this. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Cool. That's cool, uh, Paul. What role does this gospel that you talk of? What role does that play in your life? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. <laughs> what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Huh. So, so Paul, are you telling me that the aims of your life, even like the reason for your living, it's compatible with this kingdom of Jesus? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you. I think you get the point. The person of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus means everything to Paul. It's almost as if he has been crucified with Christ and it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. So let's assume that this heavenly King Jesus has actually, truly won a great victory over the kingdom of spiritual darkness that opposed him. And let's say that King Jesus, God the Son incarnate, came to earth to humbly live as a perfect human, to be perfect for us where we couldn't be, and then die a sacrificial death in our place, and then rise again in victory— Let's assume that's true and let's call both that message and the kingdom that Jesus rules, let's call them both together in totality, the gospel. Does that gospel define the reason for your living? Does it explain why you live the way you do? And does that gospel empower you to live like Jesus? Does it give you a spiritual vitality? a type of power and energy to live out a life that you could never live on your own. Because it did that for Paul. And that's all over this passage. If we don't kind of grasp this up front, the passage will probably be confusing to us. So I want to proclaim the claim that I think that this passage has up front. Let's let it sink down as we see it work itself out in the passage. Here it is, the victory of the gospel defines and empowers our work as children of God. So what do I mean by the victory of the gospel? Well, last week, Danny brought us through Philippians chapter two, verses two through 11. These are the verses right before our passage. And in those verses, we saw that the victory of the gospel was ultimately won, not in a way that you and I would probably think, not with strength of arm or power or tanks in the ancient days, horses or something like that, but instead through astonishing humility. The king of all, creator of everything, emptied himself, humbled himself, and obeyed his father to the point of dying on a cross. But it was precisely that perfect humility And it was precisely that emptying out or that pouring out that became the greatest victory of the kingdom of God. Because that perfect, humble obedience of the Son to the Father was the reason why he was resurrected and put on the throne of heaven, where he rules right now, even today. Not only that, but because he died, because he rose, because he's now king, He can give us the right to become children of God. He can give us his righteousness. He can bring us into his kingdom. Our salvation from the kingdom of darkness that opposes King Jesus, of which we all were a part, like fully voting active part, that kingdom has suffered a great defeat as a result of the gospel of King Jesus. And the existence of local churches, like the one in Philippi, and like ours here today, they exist because they're populated by former rebels against the kingdom of God, who are now redeemed citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. And who, because of the victorious work of Jesus, have been given a new life to work out that's defined and empowered by the gospel. So look, I do understand that these are explicitly spiritual terms, right? These are big spiritual ideas, but they are no less real for being spiritual. This is what Paul sees, and if if we miss it, we, we won't see everything that he's doing in the passage. It's like if he has two eyes wide open, there's one eye that's spiritually seeing Christ on his throne at every second. And one eye seeing Christ in his return at every second. And then he views life down here in between those two points. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is coming back. Therefore, do something. The aims and agenda of the kingdom, the aims and agenda of the king, Jesus, have become Paul's aim. And they've become Paul's agenda. So let's see that at work in our passage today. Let's look at the very first verse, the very first word. What is it? Therefore. I have to start with that, Danny? (laughs) All the thoughts coming next are anchored in the previous verses. Look, the reason why Paul exhorts people to work out their salvation, it's found in large part in the previous verses. So let's back up just a bit. Remember, we're talking about Jesus Dying a sacrificial death in humility. And then verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth. Under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Therefore. My beloved. King Jesus is on his throne. So work. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, Paul has in his mind firmly fixed Jesus sitting on the throne of heaven. So we need to have that in our minds today. We need to picture Jesus sitting on his throne, given all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth because of the work he did. And so just like Jesus obeyed the Father, we obey the Father. And just as Jesus worked in a way that resulted in our salvation, we need to work out our salvation in obedience to him. And as God works through Jesus' death to accomplish victory, so he works in us as we are crucified with Christ, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we need that, we need Jesus on his throne, but that's, that's not all we need. We need Jesus coming back. Paul sees Jesus' victorious return as judge and conquering king as a certainty. He really believes that's gonna happen. And because he has that day in mind, he calls it the day of Christ, by the way, Philippians two sixteen, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that it did not run in vain or labor in vain. The day of Christ is when all of creation sees King Jesus punish all the wrongdoing and fix everything. If reward is faithful, a great and terrible day of the Lord. By his grace, not terrible only for those who trust in him. It's given, it's such a given to Paul, it's so sure that it becomes both the reason why he labors and it's the spiritual power by which he labors. So let me show you again. Here's the thought process. Jesus is on the throne, therefore work. Live a certain way. Live without grumbling. Live without disputing. Look like children of God, shining in a crooked and twisted generation because Jesus is coming back. And Paul's labor has been completely defined by that day. So do you see it? The victory of the gospel is providing Paul not only the labor that he is to do, the work of his salvation, but it's providing him the spiritual power by which to do it. So let's look at one more place where this happens. Now this one admittedly is a little bit more subtle, but I think it's there. Philippians 2, let's start in 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. The pouring out that Paul is referring to, it sounds a lot like Jesus emptying himself. Jesus as if he's being poured out on the cross. And that comes from earlier. Again, we're dealing with a therefore text. Using the example of Paul's servant-hearted ministry in such sacrificial terms, it sounds a lot like the perfect servant-hearted Jesus Christ obeying God perfectly to the point of dying a sacrificial death on the cross. And if that's the case, if Paul's drawing a direct connection between the sacrificial life he's living and Jesus in his perfect obedience, then what do you think Paul's expecting will be the outcome of this sacrifice? Not death. Resurrection. Not nothing, glory, Re- reward. If Jesus was given the throne of all things because of his sacrificial obedience to God, then Paul stands to gain a ton by following right behind him, living a sacrificial life for the people of God, like Jesus, humbly being poured out, like Jesus. And then getting a ton of joy when he's with God in his kingdom being rewarded for his service with a whole bunch of other people who are now in the kingdom because he proclaimed the gospel. So do you see it? Paul is so sure of the victory of the gospel of Jesus that he's trying his best to reenact it in himself so that he can get a similar result. The victory of the gospel defines and it empowers his work And now this is key. This life, this new life, this new work has brought so much joy and so much good to Paul that he can't help but want that for the Philippians. He's like offering pure joy, saying, please come get it. He wants their work to matter. He wants their work to accomplish something, and so he commands that their work look a certain way fear and trembling. He commands that they do all things without grumbling or disputing. And he encourages them to get joy from sacrificial service because Jesus is on his throne and he's coming back to earth to make his throne here too. And because obeying King Jesus brings joy. And because living as if the kingdom of Jesus is actually real will make all the difference in the end. So, of course, the whole time, it's obvious. God is at work in Paul. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then God's at work in the Philippians to give him a new mind and a new strength and vitality. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And God is doing that here. He is I hope you felt it when you were singing because you were proclaiming the truths of the kingdom of God. The victory of the gospel was having an effect in your hearts if you let it. We just heard from someone proclaim that the gospel of Jesus Christ broke through and changed her entire outlook on life. It changed her life. This is real. God's doing the same thing for us. So let's pivot to application. Let's, let's consider how this might apply to us today. And let me start by asking again, what role does the gospel of Jesus play in your life? Is the gospel the basis for your work as a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus? And is the gospel the strength by which you live? If so, then here's what that looks like in Paul's language. This is verse 15 in our passage. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So redemption, you and I, we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Are we doing so as blameless and innocent children of God? Are we shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? If we are, it'll look like one new way of life. It'll look like The work of salvation practically working itself out in two major ways. This comes straight from our passage. The work of salvation practically works itself out in two main ways. The first is that it'll look like us pouring out our lives in humble, sacrificial faith offerings for other people. It has to. Why? Because the victory of the gospel is the aim of our joyful sacrifice. And here's the other way. It'll look like us doing all things without grumbling and disputing. The victory of the gospel is incompatible with grumbling and disputing. But let me start out just with a general word of encouragement because I recognize you can hear this and you can feel super overwhelmed. I did when I first read it. If your faith is choked out by the hardness of life right now or if sin is rampant in your life and you're weighed down by it, And if you're saying something to this effect, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough for this kind of thing. Let me just gently direct you back to Philippians 2, verse 13, right here in our passage. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Look, the victory of the gospel through Jesus, that wasn't won by your strength. In the most vital way, victory's already been won. So Paul sees the victory of the gospel, he sees it around and in between, it's undergirding and pervading all of reality. So is it any wonder why he might say something seemingly crazy like this? I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Look, Jesus Christ promises to give a very light yoke and a very easy burden because he's made you part of something big. If you have faith in him, he's made you part of a kingdom that can't be stopped. He's a victorious king who has proclaimed a victory of his kingdom. So let that king and let that kingdom provide you the spiritual power to obey. Focus more on King Jesus and how unstoppable his kingdom is and focus less on your personal failings. Focus less on your frailty. Focus more on the victory of the gospel, less on the defeat of your sin struggle. Let that king and that kingdom in a wonderful and mysterious way empower your life to make possible your obedience. So on the other hand, I do want to exhort those of us here who've been a bit spiritually lazy, because that happens too. And let me just say this is true. Jesus is on his throne and Jesus is coming back and the day of the Lord is surely coming and it matters what we do in between. It does. Work the work of faith that's purchased by the blood of Jesus. Be encouraged by his magnificent power and astonishing grace to work all the more for his good pleasure. Work with the appropriate fear of the king of all kings empowering you, trembling with equal parts total respect of an awesome and incomprehensible God and equal parts incredible joy that you're invited into his kingdom as a child right alongside him. Look, we're all former rebels. We used to be out only for ourselves. We're all becoming instead friends of Jesus disciples of Jesus, then disciple makers, and so on and so forth until we all progressively conform somehow by God's grace into the image of Christ in ever greater maturity. And what could possibly point to the grace, wisdom, kindness, and sovereignty of God than that? All right. The victory of the gospel is the aim of our joyful sacrifice of faith. Look, our work, when it's defined by the gospel of King Jesus, it has to take on the aims of King Jesus. We have to have the same agenda as the kingdom of God. And at its core, the kingdom of God is all about God. And it's all about God filling his kingdom with people who used to rebel against him by his grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. So our aim needs to be about God and his people too. Our aim needs to be kingdom compatible. Our aim needs to be joyful, sacrificial service, both to God and to his people. Let's look back at Philippians 2, 16 through 18. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Look, we have to see Paul seeing reward here. Paul sees reward for sacrificial service, and that reward is joy. Where God is, there's fullness of joy. And so he is in you when you obey him and serve his people. So don't miss out on the joy to be gained from sacrificial service. Make the aim of your life someone else's spiritual good. Consider what that might mean at small group, for instance. Are you going to small group mostly to get something out of it? Or are you going there specifically thinking about the spiritual good that you can be doing for other people? Are you going there to compare how you would run the group compared to your leader, thinking you might be doing it better? Or are you there to help them in their work progress the kingdom of God? Are you there for someone else's spiritual good? Are the names of the people in your small group kind of running through your mind as you go throughout the week? Because your aim is to provide a spiritual good for them that they could be blameless children of God. Or how about in your family? Is your parenting compatible with thinking about the spiritual good of other people? Are you choosing to parent in a less harsh way, for instance, because you know that that's to the spiritual good of your children? Husbands, are we living sacrificially for our wives? Wives, are we living sacrificially for our husbands with spiritual good for that person in mind? Because if so, then that's evidence that the kingdom of God's agenda is now your agenda. And what that doesn't look like is self-focused, non-humble strife, but instead it looks like considering others as more significant than yourselves, like Jesus. So how about in service to your local church? Let me give just one example for our near future. We will be planting a a church in the near future, near-ish, I can't say when, but relatively soon, of course, in the grand scheme So if you sense that God would have you work out your salvation in fear and trembling as being one of the few that we send out to plant that other church, please go. Don't miss out on this opportunity to gain the joy of emptying yourself for the faith of another. And then as you go, really empty yourself. Serve well, serve humbly, and serve sacrificially, considering others more significant than yourselves, just like King Jesus, just like the King you serve. For if you do, you will be just like King Jesus, getting a reward. God's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, so go work. If, on the other hand, you're called to stay and labor on with us, many needs will arise as we send out a significant number of members to plant. So serve here and work hard. Work out your salvation here with fear and trembling with us. Sacrificially pour out your lives for the members of redemption. God will reward you for it, and you'll get joy for it. Let the victory of the gospel both define and empower your work here. All right, next. The victory of the gospel is just incompatible with grumbling and disputing. There's one warning in this passage that Paul can't help but bring out. And quite frankly, this warning, this exhortation of Paul, it's super perfectly clear. I'll just read it. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. We're to live life grumble-free. We're to live life dispute-free. And to be clear, this applies to all of life. But in a particular way, it applies to the context of this life here. Why? Because in the context of life among the children of God, grumbling and disputing are just incompatible. So if people who claim to be part of that kingdom and yet their lives are completely built on a foundation of grumbling and disputing, they might not be children of God. Look, it's like gluten to a person living with celiac disease. The enterocyte, okay, that's too medical. (laughs) it's incompatible. <laughs> they rob joy. They divide. They destroy unity. They directly oppose the outcome of being blameless and innocent on the day of Christ. So grumbling and, and disputing, they're just incompatible with our new lives in Christ. Hey, do you guys remember this? This is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What better way to undo that than to grumble and to dispute? There's no better way. If you really want to undo the unity of a local church, then grumble and dispute. Because instead of taking the focus of side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel, it turns it in. And you strive together against each other. And instead of having a humble view like Christ, it's a very selfish view, where you're exalting yourself. So can I just take a pastoral moment and ask you, please don't grumble. (laughs) Please don't dispute. I don't want that for you. I don't want that to rob your joy. I don't want that to ruin your fellowship, because it will. And look, I do accept the statistical reality that grumbling and disputing are already here. (laughs) It's just, it's inevitable. But let's resolve together today, this week, this year, increasingly, let's resolve to burn grumbling and disputing out from among us. Let's be super careful with the words we speak. Look, the words you speak are a direct window to your heart. So if you've got a grumbly heart, you're going to say grumbly words. Pay attention to the words you're saying. A grumbly heart is grumbly against the Lord first and foremost. Let's strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and resolve to burn away grumbling. You can't do it alone, obviously. We're talking about being crucified with the crucified Jesus so that we can be resurrected with him too. So evaluate your words. Don't express frustration by grumbling. These grumblings are the anti-gospel and they rob you of joy. They don't even help your frustrations. They don't do anything. They just add more. The other thing about grumbling that I think we often forget about is that grumbling pollutes in our mind what the true reality is. That Jesus is on his throne. That we have nothing to grumble about because we have been saved by grace through faith. Amen. What do we have to grumble about? We, we used to be former rebels against the kingdom of God and and the day of Jesus' return was going to be really bad for us. But now it won't. Should we have faith in Christ, what do we have to grumble about? He's at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What do we have to grumble about? We've got other people who are believing the same stuff, proclaiming the mysteries of the wonderful gospel of God together in song. We've got 47 new members who want to do this with us by God's grace. What do we have to complain about? If you have a self-focus, there's a lot to complain about. But if you, like a blameless child of God, have a life that's now defined by the victorious gospel of God, yeah, there's nothing to complain about. For we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, it's Christ who lives in us. So let's live that life in faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the victory of the gospel. We proclaim your majesty in making it happen. We delight in the mystery that even our work here on earth, it still means something and we're still supposed to do something and yet the whole time, mysteriously, wondrously, to your glory, you're the one who's working in us. Both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And Lord, in, in equal parts today, We have the fear and trembling of recognizing who you are as the King of Kings and we just tremble with joy and gratitude that you've saved us from our self-worship which just led to death. But instead, you've given us life in your son. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.